welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner. I am your host, Avi Wolf. This is a podcast about history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. My guest today is Zach St. Clair, known to Twitter users as Fuss in its various conjugations, a history nerd and a massive gaming nerd. Uh, today we will be talking about the interplay between games and popular culture and actual historical study. And I hope that I and you will learn a great deal about both. Welcome, Zach. Thanks, Avi. It's nice to be here. So I myself am a very big history nerd, but I'm actually a lot more curious about the question of wargaming, because although I did play Risk uh, when I was a kid and I did play Civilization II and Sid Meier's Gettysburg, war. Wargaming or turn-based gaming always seemed to me like a really kind of hardcore, intense way of, of learning learning history or playing at history. I'm very curious to know how you got into it specifically. Well, for me, my dad actually was the one who got me into it. Uh, he played a game called Advanced Squad Leader quite often, as well as some of the other older games. Um, but that's really what happened was was that I just kind of saw them on the shelves and I watched him and his friends starting to play. So I asked him to play and once I reached a certain age where I could understand the basics, he got me into the game. Uh, and I don't play that one as much anymore, but that that's how a lot of wargaming tends to come around actually is it's passed down uh, from me- member of a family to member of a family. But it's definitely one that can seem intimidating when you get into it for the first time. So for those of us who are new to it, who have never played it, uh, why don't you explain what exactly is wargaming? How does it work? Can you play alone? Do you have to play with friends? Um, What are the different kinds and so forth? So wargaming is essentially, it's it's kind of a difficult thing to quantify because there are so many different definitions that people make. But uh, to hazard my own, I would say wargaming is a game system that simulates physical conflict on one scale or another between uh, different sides. So there are games that go as low as one person, that where you're actually playing against the game and trying to achieve a goal, all the way up to war games that I've seen that you have double-digit people playing it at the same time. Um, so what you have is, is that you have just potentially teams. Uh, some games are every man for himself in a way, but ultimately it's just a way of simulating physical conflict in uh, an attempt to, number one, actually give a, a feeling of command, but more importantly, it's it's just another way of spending time with friends and enjoying yourself. Okay. Um, but as I mentioned before, uh, I played Risk, and by the way, one of the things I learned from Risk is that it's really, really, really hard to conquer the whole world. Like at some point you're going to get stopped simply from mere exhaustion. But uh, aside from that, how um, are there any real differences in terms of experience or precision or or length of time of a board game compared to, say, the kind of games that people play online 
or even uh, I have a friend who teaches uh, role playing uh, th uh, through his uh, history through role playing, and that's one of the things he does is he teaches people to act individually as though they were soldiers. So what what might be not all the difference. You don't have to give us a, like a whole thesis, but like just for someone just starting out, if they're considering it, what are the differences? So I would say that the, the big difference that you tend to run into with war games is, is that there is typically more time put into it than your average online game. Um, most war games that I have seen tend to take from two hours to eight hours or so. There's there's outliers on both sides. Uh, there has been a significant movement in the wargaming community to make more playable, rapid-playing games, and, and there are some companies like GMT and Hollenspiel that are getting into that. And then there's also the old-school monster games. Monster board games can take upwards of 20, 30, 40 hours to complete because they're designed to be very in-depth. Um, but I think the main thing that you'd be running into is, is that since it is such a long experience, there's a lot of planning and typically a lot of internal story that happens during the game. Uh, not perhaps as much as in a role-playing game, which can expand, which can extend for months, years potentially at a time. But it's there's quite a bit that goes into it, and every move can sort of have rippling repercussions as the game goes along. Uh, so, as you said, with, with a game like Risk, which is, I would say, very generally a war game, uh, it's you, you kind of have to plan ahead to what you're going to do. So it's, it's, a good, it's a good kind of game for people who want to see their actions take effect later on. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd be curious. Could you give Could you give us an example of a specific internal story of a game you recently played, just as a a demonstration of what that's like? Um, so I would actually say that the best example of that recently for me has been I got to play uh, Pendragon: The Fall of Roman Britain, which is a game that starts with Roman Britain in relative peace and there are four different factions there's the dukes who are essentially the local roman garrisons uh there are the civitates who are the local mostly celtic people and rulers that the romans are aligned with but they're not necessarily pro-empire uh, at least as the game goes on and then you have the scoti who are uh, celtic raiders from Pictland and from Ireland, and then you have the Saxons who are Germanic raiders. And as the game starts, you have, you know, a relatively peaceful Britain, but the Romans just don't have that much manpower to defend that much of an island. So as the game starts, the Saxons and the Scoti tend to arrive with raiders, and they're they're pillaging towns and they're burning down fortresses and just trying to make essentially money by pillaging the area but as the game goes on and the british control or the the roman control over britain starts to crumble you have a situation where suddenly the saxons and the scotis start to settle and we we had that the saxons started settling in the eastern fens of england and the scotis started settling in wales and in northumbria and so 
the game is designed in such a way where as more pressure is put on the Romans, the actual interior of the Roman ruling system starts to collapse as Rome is unable and unwilling to defend Britain as it has a lot of problems on its plate at this point. And essentially it shows the devolution of the Roman forces into the into sort of a Romano-British faction, uh, which actually in this situation would be Arthur's sort of people. Uh, the Civitates turning into the local kings that were still British, but not necessarily at that point pro-Roman, and then sort of competing factions of the Scoti and the Saxons. Uh, it ended up being a Scoti win because they set up a significant amount of territory and kept the area unstable enough that they were able to successfully keep Britain essentially as a point of raids for the Irish and uh, eventually Scottish kingdoms that would rise. But um, playing as the Civitates, it's just very difficult to... Um, it, it was very difficult to try to juggle everything that was going on. Um, and me and the player that had played the Dukes uh, were very... We had a lot of antipathy toward each other from the start, which probably didn't help. But it was definitely, it was it had an internal story where you have just quite a, f we, we had quite a few raids. Uh, when London fell, that was sort of the moment where Rome gave up completely on Britain. Uh, and then it just turns into sort of this mad scrabble. But there were just a lot of little moments that came up. Uh, where it seemed like maybe we would be able to turn it around, or where it seemed like maybe the Saxons would end up getting an advantage. But it was it had a story which was essentially the fall of Roman Britain and the rise of powerful Scoti tribes. So that's great. Uh, as, a, as a history lover, I've, I always love to hear about uh, stories, uh, games, ways in which history becomes alive to people. Uh, in a way that it's not just dry information or people think it's too uh, distant in time or in culture in such a way that they feel that, well, you know, what does this have to do with me? That may be a fascinating story, but who cares, right? So that, that sounds like a great way to teach. However, uh, I have to wonder though, it sounds like war games involve a lot of thought, involve a lot of preparation, involve a lot of study. Um, just how deep does that study go? Because there are there are, there's always more levels of depth you can go to in any given historical period, even one with few sources. And there's also the fact that there are pro there is always problems with the accuracy of sources, and even the um, problem that a lot of historical events change due to random issues, like a sudden outbreak of plague, or because the general suddenly dropped dead from a heart attack. Um, so two, so two questions for you. One is how, what is like the scope of sources that are usually used for your average typical war game? Uh, and second, what um, place does randomness, if anything, have in this game, which is clearly trying to, at least as much as reasonably possible, uh, recreate a historical period? So as far as sources go and, and the scope, um, most of the war games that I have run into uh, for 
certain well i shouldn't say that gmt and other uh larger war game companies tend to have um a playbook and the playbook not only goes into the actual history it also goes into the designers ideas for why they made the game the way that they did and what exactly they're trying to model and even have a works cited page in a lot of ways uh war games have become much more strenuously researched than they had been in the past. Um, I will say that there are times, unfortunately, when designers just have to make judgment calls, uh, where, okay, we don't know exactly where this battle was fought, so we need to try to do what we can to understand what the lay of the terrain is, or we don't have an exact order of battle for this army. But ultimately what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to model a situation and that, unfortunately and fortunately, for the sake of time, uh, requires a certain level of abstraction. So every designer going into a game has to essentially ask themselves, what am I trying to model? Uh, to go back to the example of Pendragon, uh, the modeling was more a generation-by-generation generation breakdown of Great Britain. The battles, individual battles, happen very rapidly in that game. A battle should take no more than two minutes to do, and that's only if you're talking like a, a large Arthurian clash of armies sort of situation, um, because that's, that's just not the scope of the game. On the other hand, you have a lot of games that go a little bit more in-depth. As for the randomness of uh, in my opinion, randomness is a very important part of war games. Uh, things can't be too random because your decisions have to make a difference in the grand scheme of things. But no matter what position you're in, whether you are, you know, George Marshall in the United States during World War II, or if you're Dwight Eisenhower, or if you're Omar Bradley, the lower level you go, the decision points you're making are different. But you don't have control over the situation, so maybe your attack fails. Maybe you catch a break in the enemy unit's route in, at the right time. Um, but there needs to be a certain level of randomness because, you know, we'll go back to Clausewitz, uh, friction is something that you just don't know necessarily how it's going to come up, but if it doesn't come up, you can't really do a good job of simulating war, and it doesn't make a great game for a uh, war game either. Okay. Um, you mentioned George Marshall and Omar Bradley, and that's a nice segue into my next question. Um, I surfed around a bit to see what uh, war games were on offer, just from a Google search, and I noticed that overwhelmingly uh, there's a very 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 heavy focus uh, on the second world war somewhat uh, followed by the first it's almost as if uh, the two world wars and especially the second serve almost in the same role that I guess the Napoleonic Wars served in the 19th century where everybody obsessed about them and especially especially specific battles that Napoleon fought to the exclusion of almost everything else now on the one hand i get it uh it was the mo these were the most titanic conflicts ever fought or that we can remember uh, they had far-reaching consequences on the other hand it strikes me a bit as somewhat unfairly overshadowing a lot of conflicts that were often just at titanic and certainly as world-changing um 
So on the one hand, I get the need to attract people. It's kind of like how Netflix uh, or various streaming services rely on extremely powerful shows so they see less popular shows. On the other hand, I have to wonder if there isn't a little bit of overkill here. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. As for World War II, I'm, I'm inclined to agree about the overkill argument, especially since World War II tends to focus heavily on the war on the Eastern Front between the Soviet Union and Germany, the war in Normandy, so D-Day to the end of the war, and in North Africa. Um, there have been some designers that have done a good job with the Pacific Theater, um, but you'll tend to find that the lesser-known theaters, primarily uh, the Middle East, that is the British fighting in Syria and in Iraq, the China-Burma theater where you have British and Japanese forces in modern-day Myanmar, or the war that China was fighting against Japan from 1937 to 1945, oftentimes get overshadowed. Um, and I think a, it's a dual issue where you just have fewer people who are interested in those secondary subjects, as much as I hate to say it, uh, because of the fact that these are businesses, they do tend to go with more of the World War II subject. World War I is interesting because until very recently, about 10 years ago, there was nothing in the market for World War I. Uh, you had Pads of Glory had just come out by GMT, and you had uh, Guns of August and some other very old systems. But by and large, the centennial of World War I has really caused a rejuvenation of interest in that subject. For the longest time, the untouchable two were World War II and the American Civil War. So uh, the American Civil War has sort of lost cachet, whereas the World War I has gained it. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars are not popular here in the States, but they're significantly more popular in Great Britain, and uh, especially among historical miniatures gamers, uh, where instead of using boards, you use figures and, and tape measures and things like that. But uh, I will definitely agree that there there does seem to be a glut on World War II, because how many games do you really need on D-Day and Market Garden and uh, on the Eastern Front? But sometimes some designers will surprise you with a new game that does a great job of simulating the conflict. Well, you mentioned uh, Centennials bringing uh, events around, and there's a war going on right now, 100 years ago, that was one of the most consequential uh, wars alongside the two world wars, and that would be the Russian Civil War. And that war would strike me uh, alongside other civil wars, such as the Spanish and the, and the uh, Chinese, but perhaps even more so, as a particularly difficult uh, game to model because there are just so many different sides and so many potential allies of different sides and so many so, uh, ch politics that change so often and so rapidly that I honestly wonder, even if a designer was really good and wanted to model uh, a Russian Civil War game, would do you think they would be successful in such a way that it would still be fun? Or would it be so incredibly confusing that it would be like those... Um, those graphs you see spread around every so often about the Syrian civil war where you just can't keep heads or tails of what's going on. I think the way that... Uh, I, I've actually played several games on the Russian civil war and on the Spanish civil war. Um, Reds by GMT 
and uh, Crusade and Revolution by Compass Games uh, for the Russian and Spanish Civil Wars respectively, I believe do a very good job of simulating the conflict. But the main thing that they tend to do is move away from the political aspects. Uh, you tend to play an overall commander. Um, in Reds, in that situation, you're playing the overall commander of either the Bolsheviks or a wide variety of different uh, white factions. But the idea is is that essentially due to, as you said, the, the utter chaos of the political arena at that time, there are certain things you just sort of have to bake into the system or else things are going to go in a wildly different direction. Like what if Lenin had actually been killed by the assassination attempt? What if the whites had effectively united around a leader, whether it's Kolchak or Denikin or whoever? Um, what happens if the Republicans have more support among the army, or what if the army successfully takes Madrid during the coup in the Spanish Civil War? Um, you sort of have to take some of the political things as a given. Um, there are some games where you use cards quite a bit that actually help with the political decision-making um, that can help model that situation. Um, I believe Decision Games released one a while ago called Triumph of Chaos about the Russian Civil War that goes deep into detail. But the main issue with that one is, is that while it looks like a lot of fun, it has a ton of rules because of the fact that you are dealing with the Kievan Khanate in Central Asia, you're dealing with the Czech, uh, the Czech Legion, you're dealing with Kolchak and the Komuch out east, you're dealing with Miller and uh, Tchaikovsky's government in the north, you're dealing with Denikin after the Ice March. There's just so much that goes into that one that while it's supposed to be an interesting and fun simulation, it is going to take longer, whereas games like Reds tend to take a few hours uh, because you're dealing just with the military situation. So you mentioned how um, they play down the politics in the war game, and I can understand that. But on the other side of it, uh, politics is kind of important. These were, after all, uh, in the Spanish Civil War, the Chinese Civil War, the Russian Civil War, these were uh, conflicts in which politics, and I might dare say moral philosophy, played a very, very major role. These were people fighting not just over power, but for how people should live and how people should be ruled. And I'm honestly curious, especially given that civil wars especially um, tend to involve a lot of moral and, dare I say, very immoral decisions, um, Does are there war games that try and factor that in or at least make you make moral dilemmas where you maybe pay a penalty a practical penalty or get a practical reward or do they just they don't they don't want to touch that it's too complicated it would make two people angry or two uh people too upset because uh, it strikes me as a as a as a really good way even better than standard issue uh philosophical dilemmas which often seem too abstract uh, to deal with real-world decision-making, including real-world moral decision-making. Well, and that tends to come down to a designer-by-designer -designer decision. Uh, what you tend to have... Um, there's a game that I have called Battle for China. It starts in 1937 with the Japanese invasion of China, and it's designed for three players. You have a, a Kuomintang player, a Chinese Communist Party player, and a Japanese player. 
Um, and all of them are trying to end the war with domination over China. The problem that you tend to run into, I'm going to use an example for the Japanese. Um, the Japanese, as they go further in, they just don't have as many troops as the Chinese do. They're significantly better by and large, but they don't have a lot of them. And as you get further in, you have to defend your interior lines from guerrillas. And it's something that you run into as Japan where you have an option. Um, you can actually engage in Japan's three alls policy, uh, which was essentially wholesale slaughter of local peoples in areas that they considered to not be secured. Um, it's, you know, morally absolutely reprehensible, but for Japan, they saw it as a way of fixing the guerrilla problem, so to speak. So you can do that. However, by doing that, you actually increase the willingness of the people of China to fight for the, the Communist Party and for the Nationalists. Uh, for the Nationalists and the Communists, you oftentimes have strife between one another, and if you... Are, since you don't often fight one another, but you can, there are times when the two factions will clash, but due to the fact that you're being actively invaded by a hostile imperial power, you have that issue where if you attack the other side, the people of China don't hear, you know, oh, well, we have this ideological reason. Your, your friends in your group will understand why you're attacking the communists or why you're attacking the nationalists, but all the people of China see is while we are engaged in a hostile takeover by a foreign state that's killing our people and enslaving us, you've decided to take this opportunity to attack fellow Chinese. Um, it's, it's definitely a game that does a good job of that. And there are other games. Uh, there's a game on the Liberian Civil War uh, called Liberia Descent into Hell, and it's not terribly poorly named. You're dealing with a lot of atrocities. You're dealing with some very unpleasant subjects, and they don't do much to disguise it, and I feel like that was a... It, it caught a lot of flack, but I feel like it was a good design decision, because in a war like Liberia, in a war like the battle... In, in a war like the Second Sino-Japanese War, even in wars like World War II, you can't scrub those down morally too much without being a real problem. Um, there is something to be said for modeling scale. If, if you're not in charge of the political aspects in your game, like if you're playing a game on a specific battle, you're, you're not dealing with politics, but um, they oftentimes do have issues that pop up based on the political decisions of those above you uh, or of your party that you have to struggle with. Um, there's another game like Cataclysm. It's called Cataclysm. It's World War II starting in 1933. So the war hasn't begun, but you have uh, the three different factions, the fascists, the Western democracies, and the Soviet Union. And each of them have advantages and disadvantages baked in. The Americans especially, but also the British and French, really don't want another war. So they don't have the same political will as the other two factions. The Soviets are backwards, and they're dealing with... You know, they eventually have to deal with purges, they're dealing with their infrastructure being insufficient and their industry being inferior, and the Axis are dealing with the fact that they're stuck in the middle of different factions that have more industrial might than they do put together. Um, so you're, you're all dealing with the different political aspects of your groups, 
but ultimately that is a ga- cataclysm is a game about the politics battle for china is a game about the politics liberia is you're you're playing the overall commanders so all of these games make sense to have political elements other games more further down either tend to have very few or very set political rules So that's the case with war games, and that makes sense. And it's nice to hear that they do incorporate some moral issues and the practical ramifications, even if they don't want to go into, I guess, you know, penalizing you for shooting prisoners or whatever. Um, are there, is there re- any kind of a market for, say, uh, non-war uh, political decision-making games? Because I noticed... Uh, I think it was a few weeks ago you played a game on deciding on whether or not to pass healthcare reform or Obamacare or, or something like that. Is there a real market for that or is that sort of like a, a real sub subgroup of the much more popular let's start killing the other guy? It's a market that I, I don't necessarily know that there's a set market for it, but I also believe that there is a place for it if more companies would be willing to go out and find it. Um, GMT re-released an older game called 1960 The Making of a President, which is all about trying to win the election as either Kennedy or Nixon. Um, It's a two-player game, it's relatively fast playing. And the thing about war games is, is that they tend to look very intimidating on, excuse me, on first glance. Whereas political games aren't necessarily that intimidating. Um, the game on healthcare reform is actually not one that's been published. It was uh, made by a friend of mine named Noah Rudnick. A uh, smart kid works in politics. But uh, there would be a place, I believe, for people to do more politically based games. The main issue is, is that politically based games tend to have a lot, weirdly enough, considering we're dealing with war, they tend to have more fraught issues. Uh, so unless you're going significantly farther back in time, you're going to have a harder time getting around the fact that there are many people who are going to be upset that their particular faction is not shown in an angelic light. Uh, there are great games. Uh, Fort Sumter is a good example. It's 1860, and the game takes place right after President Lincoln has been elected, but not inaugurated, and it ends essentially with the start of the Civil War. There's no real shots that are fired during the game. Um, It's designed to be very quick playing. It's only 30 minutes, so it's very abstract. But it is all about one side playing the Unionists, the other side playing the Secessionists, and you're trying to gain as much popular and material support for the war that is coming. so you're trying to convince moderates to join, you're trying to get newspapers uh, on your side, you're trying to take control of the federal arsenals and things like that. There's not as much pull for those kinds of games, but the advantage is is that you can pull people who wouldn't necessarily be as willing to have a game about, oh, the first cavalry in Vietnam, but they would be willing to have a game on say, the fight over whether or not to stay on the gold standard. Uh, You can have unusual and interesting mechanics that can come up, but it's also not necessarily something that would be covered under the idea of war game either. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think stuff like that would be interesting. And while it's true that it doesn't uh, portray people in an angelic light, and let's face it, if you're playing a war game, your side is not going to be in an angelic light either. It sounds like, at least from what you're telling me, that it would be very uh, educational that if the teachers or the people could design it well enough, I mean, as reasonably as trying to not anger uh, people, uh, at least in our very sensitive age, uh, it sounds like it would be a way to get people to understand. I often hear, I often hear a lot of people saying that if only schools taught civics, then that would be like a magical wand you could wave, and then all of a sudden they'd understand politics better. And I am very skeptical of that. Uh, I think that civics tends to be too dry or too idealized. Uh, and the minute people hear about how politics actually works, and they usually hear the negative aspects, they tend to become very, uh, very cynical and withdrawn. And I think that games like what you're describing might actually provide a healthy balance, a healthy idea where people are trying to do good, but yes, they have to horse trade and they're not going to make the perfect decisions. But that's a much better, healthier understanding than either pie in the sky, the Constitution was given down from heaven, or they're all a bunch of bastards, put them against the wall. Uh, I think that would be a good idea. But uh, what do you think? Um, I think it's a great idea, honestly. I feel like one of the main issues with civics, as you said, is that it is very dry. And unfortunately, uh, that's very difficult to teach to somebody who's not already interested in it. And as you said, it's also a very idealistic field. It, we, it's, it's the West Wingification of politics where oh if only all of these politicians would get together and vote in the national best interest without understanding that that's just not the way things work uh politics is uh, it's a horse trading situation and it's also a power game if if you want to be able to get something done you need to have the necessary support to do it um i will say that there are some games that do an effective job of showing that uh, as a secondary or even a parallel idea in a game. Uh, the coin series actually is one that I would highly recommend for that, where uh, it's typically four players, they're counterinsurgency games, and it's all about trying to either... It's, it's all about completing your objectives, but having games on politics is very handy because then you start having the question of okay this is the exact bill you would like how would you like it to be passed or okay you're doing a class on let's say chinese history and you're trying to get reforms passed well you need to successfully get the right interest groups on board enough of the right interest groups or it's just never going to be implemented the for lack of a better term, the, the real politic of the situation so rarely comes into the discussion that people will hear about the, the pie-in-the-sky ideas of civics, and then when they see how it actually works, they tend to leave deeply cynical about the process. Uh, that's not something I'm completely innocent of either, but it's definitely something that we could do to help make the people learning it understand that it's not just about law it's also about the method of creating passing and especially implementing the law 
Well, uh, from your mouth to God's ears, here's hoping that uh, games uh, are taught more in schools and perhaps uh, we adults could uh, stand to play a game or two, uh, maybe even all get together and try and pass laws and understand that it's not quite as easy uh, uh, sitting in front of the television or on Twitter saying you should be able to do that than if you're actually trying to do it. So I'd like to end off by asking you uh, where I started from. Assuming someone is a complete beginner, and to them it strikes them that war games or just uh, role-play-based games in general, they just sound too intimidating, too detailed, uh, too sophisticated for them. Where would you suggest they start so that they can realize that it's not so scary and that it can actually be a lot of fun? Um, well, there's actually several companies that I would suggest. Columbia Games does a great job. They have uh, what they call block games. First of all, they're nice, big, attractive pieces, so that's a little bit of an eye-catcher. But more importantly, the games themselves, uh, they handle unusual topics, but they also don't tend to be too rules-intensive. So, for example, uh, you have The Hammer of the Scots, which is about the Scottish rebellions of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce against Edward I and II of England. Uh, those games, they've got one on the Crusades, they have one on the War of 1812. Those games tend to only have about five or six pages of rules, and they're very intuitive when you get into them. I would say, though, one of the biggest things that a prospective wargamer should do is you should try to find a game that's middling to low-level difficulty, but try to find something that you're interested in. One of the biggest parts of wargaming is not just the system. The system for the game, of course, matters quite a bit for how much fun it's going to be, but don't get a game for a setting that you don't care about just because it's very highly rated. Uh, there are lots of good games out there, but for example, if you want to play a war game. Uh, about, let's say, modern war, and you pick up Next War, let's say any game from the Next War series is typically fairly difficult. Uh, it's better to pick one of those up than pick up a game that, about a conflict you don't care about and then try to get into it. So if you want to do something in modern war, you can pick up a Next War game and it will be a little bit more intimidating to start, but you will at least have a chance of getting it learned and, and understanding that you're never going to get it right the first time you play. Even I have that issue. You're never going to get it right the first time you play. Learning these games is a process. But if you pick up a game on, say, the War of Spanish Succession, and you have no interest in, in 18th century politics, you're going to pick the game up, you're going to see the rule book. you're not going to like it, and you're just going to put it down. Uh, so try to find something that you and your friends would want to play. Um, there is a very good community of people on BoardGameGeek.com uh, that will help you with any wargame-related questions. They are very helpful, they have a wealth of knowledge from being completely obsessive about the subject like I am. Uh, so if you have any questions, of course, you can always reach out to them. Uh, but otherwise, I would just say to find something you love and, and try to experience it. So that's a great place to uh, end off. And I hope that uh, people who listen here maybe 
look into it or recommend it to their friends or their kids. Uh, I myself am going to maybe browse a bit. Zach, thank you so much for having uh, for being with us. Uh, you've really made what often feels like an obscure and inaccessible uh, field of having fun uh, sound fascinating and informative and even educational. Uh, why don't you uh, tell our followers uh, where they can reach you if they'd like to ask you any more questions? Uh, really, the only way to get a hold of me, if, if you're not already familiar with me, would be my Twitter handle. I am at SemperFiTrex. That's S-E-M-P-E-R-F-I-T-R-E-X uh, on Twitter. But otherwise, uh, feel free to throw me a DM if you have any questions or, or tag me into a thread. I'm more than happy to talk about this subject. Wargaming is something that I feel like would help a lot of people understand history better. And it's also just a very enjoyable social activity uh, to get us all pulled away from our screens, which we could all use a little bit more of. Yes, we could. Uh, and if you want to uh, get in touch with me, you are going to have to spend at least three seconds on the screen. Uh, I am available at, at capital A lowercase vi, capital W, lowercase o-o-l-f. Uh, you can identify me by my avatar, which is a green worm. Zach, have a great day uh, and enjoy gaming. Thanks for having me on, Avi. You have a great day.